This morning's scripture is taken from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Thank you, Barbara. I love how you expressed God's words to Cain, because I think when we talk about shame, as we are in the series, we can think that God has a tone, right? <laughs> I uh, realized this a few years ago when I was reading scripture and someone said, is that the only way that God could have said it? And it was the first time I realized that maybe God didn't have the same tones that I had for God. So if you're here wondering like, oh, how do we read the Bible? Uh, we want to read the Bible generously, especially for God. So last week, Leanne gave this beautiful and powerful message about shame and the expressions of shames, shame. And one of the truths that she shared was that the challenge of shame is that we feel it before we can actually express or explain it. So do you remember one of your first expressions of shame or your first feelings of shame and what resulted? Like maybe you were the kid who when their parent took them on a play date, you know, and spread the big blanket down on the grass at the park, you were the kid who loved to just sit content on that blanket, never needing to leave the space of the caregivers. Or maybe you were the kid who loved to like play in the mulch or eat the mulch, let's be honest. And, you know, you, you sat, you know, 20 feet away. Or maybe you were the kid that's like, God gave me legs, they must be for moving. So, you know, you're looking at the caregivers and you're walking and this is my baby walk, right? You know, and you're going and you see something shiny, like the sun just hits it ever so close across the street. And you live in blissful ignorance of any potential dangers of crossing the street because you're two, right? So you just start walking towards the street and all of a sudden you hear, no! And most toddlers don't actually understand the abstract meaning of the word no. 
but they know the tone. And they stop most. Stop immediately. And none of that has to be shame. But what happens next is often what determines if there's shame. It could have played out one of two ways. Maybe your mother ran, started running to you, but arms were open, and all of a sudden she hears the tone in her words, and immediately, not only her words, but her face softens. And she's like, oh, honey, no, let's play over here. See, in that moment, relationships remain connected. Even though there was this, I did something wrong, that could have gone to shame, because the relationship stayed, there really probably wasn't any shame. But if your mom or your parent continued to express this tone that said anger, this body that said distance, and this even worse could have been violent because we're not too far from being spanked, now all of a sudden, Shame fills that child because relationship was ruptured. Little neural pathways, doctors have figured this out, little neural pathways are formed that when I do that, this person feels and looks this, and I sense that I'm alone. For many of us, something like that was probably our first memory of shame. And today we look at what shame does and how we can begin the healing. So when we, when we started the series, we looked at the creation story. And one of the reasons I think that we look at the creation story is because it's before cultures, before ethnicities, before languages. It's like ultimate primal humanity. So the things that we see in the creation story probably happen to all of us no matter where we come from or how we talk or what we look like. And we looked at how the crafty serpent used shame to spread doubt, to distort truth, and to disrupt relationships. And that was all before Adam and Eve actually took and ate that forbidden fruit. However, once they ate, their eyes were opened. And I love how Leanne said it last week. She said, their eyes were opened they didn't open their eyes. Their eyes were opened, and the serpent didn't tell them they were naked. They already were naked. But now it brought feelings of shame with that. When God designed us to be naked or to be dependent, it's actually not about clothes or no clothes. It's about being dependent and not enough and being okay with that. And let's be honest, most of us are not okay with not being enough. And from that point on in the story, we see that shame is this gateway to fear, to hiding, and to blaming others for who we are, for what we've done, and for where we're at. And just like the first story, even though God actually tried to help them see where they were, they were still in the garden. And how they were, they were still one. They couldn't live in the garden based on their answers, not based on God wanting to kick them out. See, when shame fully grows, it blocks God's love. 
When shame grows up, it blocks God's love and it results in isolation. It's this fear of being alone and ultimately results in feeling alone. So one of my biggest memories, first memories of shame, actually was around the time I was 10 years old. I wasn't around. I actually was 10. My best friend and I got in an argument. I don't remember what it was. I didn't think it was a big argument, but like a few days later, we got into a little disagreement. I remember exactly where I was. I was in the seafoam green-painted, brick-walled boys' bathroom of uh, Highland Elementary School. Don't ask me why my best friend and I were hanging out in the bathroom, but we just were. And I said something to him that made him mad. And he said, that's it. I'm done. And the next day, I'm done being your friend. And the next day, I walked into the lunchroom, like cafeteria filled with hundreds of children, went through the lunch line, got my tray. I'm bringing it over to our 16 seat, a rectangular table with those little plastic orange discs, eight of them on each side. I remember there was one across from my, until yesterday, best friend, and then one like four or five spots down. Everybody else was filled at the table, and I went to sit down, and he looked up at me, and he said, what are you doing? We're not friends with you anymore. No, I'm 10, right? There's this little tiny logical part of my brain that's sort of emerging. At least that's what all the brain development says. It's like growing up. And so I'm like, wait a second. I think you can only decide that for you. You can't decide that for everyone else here. But at that same moment, what shame told me is maybe he can decide that. Maybe these people aren't actually my friends. Maybe they're just all his friends. And so I walked away from that table, never, never, ever to sit with those people again. Now, that memory does not haunt or taunt me like it once did. But as you can tell from my facial expressions and my feelings that are coming out right now, I can pull it up as simple as going over to your shelf, pulling a Blu-ray off, sticking it in the tray, and clicking select a scene. The seafoam brick-walled bathroom is still there. Shame forms these pathways in our minds. It was the first time I remember feeling totally alone, and there was nothing I could do about it. Now, I know that's not true now. I believe... That's not true then. But that's not what shame tells us. Shame tells us you're alone and there's nothing you can do to change it. Shame wants us to believe this story. But see, if we look carefully in the Bible, we see God telling a different story. One where we're not alone. One where God is actually trying to, over and over, do whatever he can to help us. 
I mean, we see it actually in the first story when God reached out to Adam and Eve and asked them questions to invite relationship. We see even when they didn't get those questions right, even when it showed that they had to be outside the garden, God covered them with animal skins. Let's, let's be honest, that would be a lot better than fig leaves sewn together, especially with my sewing technique. I mean, he adequately covers them. And then God puts this flaming sword, if you read that part of the scripture, this flaming sword at the edge of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life, which I always read as keeping them out. But what if that was angelic protection to always ensure a way back? See, when I go to the end of the Bible and I read Revelation, it says that the tree of life is alive and well, that there is a river flowing on either side of it. That the city that is now in the garden is where God and humans will be one. To me, the story says that God has always been about ensuring the way back. But we tend to believe a different story. I think now that that's shame trying to tell us a different story. So we don't get any more about how Adam and Eve walked with God, how they might have struggled with sin or overcome shame. In fact, I think to just understand God's story and our story, that might be all we need from Adam and Eve. At least that's all we're given. And so to really see what happens when shame overtakes us, we've got to go to the story's next story, where Adam and Eve have two sons, that one's a farmer and one's a shepherd. And it says, like Barbara read, that Abel kept flocks. He was the younger brother. He was the shepherd. And in the course of time, the older brother brings an offering, some of the fruits of the soil. And the younger brother brings some offering, fat portions from the firstborn, which is like saying the, the juiciest, best part of the steak. It was the first and best. Now, we could spend a lot of time wondering, and it, it would actually be a good exercise to wonder why Abel's offering was accepted and why Cain's wasn't accepted. That's just not what we're talking about today. So, for today, I want us to notice Cain's reaction. He walked away from this angry, very angry. In the Hebrew, it says, angry, angry, because they don't have very, so they have to put the word down twice. And his face was downcast. Okay, so Cain is angry, and we can easily judge him for it. But I want you to think about if you've ever tried to do something great or even really good, and there's someone else that just does it better. And it even makes it worse if the two events or two people are closely connected. Like maybe you were the second best runner on the track team. And you knew no matter what you did, that the first person would always be faster. Or maybe you had a sibling who got better grades and always did the right thing. I think what this story is saying is it's natural to be angry about that. What matters most is what we do with that anger. So King David, maybe before he was king, but King David wrote in Psalm 4, don't sin in your anger or don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. 
that sometimes some of us who tend to get angry quickly know that the best thing we can do when we're angry is to not say anything. And Paul tells the believers in a place called Ephesus in Ephesians 4, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. So in this case, when we're angry, it might be the best thing to not speak right away, but we can't also, this is saying, hold on to it too long to let it become bitter and resentful. To let us become bitter and resentful. So in our anger, what are we going to do? So for Cain, his expression was his face was downcast, which is an ancient Hebrew way of saying his eyes were on his feet. That's what it literally means. Now, I'm not talking about the extroverted engineer, you know, who, when he talks, looks at the other person's feet. You know, bad dad jokes, just in case you're paying attention. Get it? I don't know. How it's... I'm talking about what happens to Cain and what happens to all of us when we're angry and we sit in that anger and our eyes go on to ourselves and we only think about who we are and where we are. We don't look at where God is and we don't look at where our brothers and sisters are and we don't look at where we're going. And that is a dangerous place. And God knows that. And God wants Cain to understand the danger. That's why God says to Cain, and I, I, again, I love the expression that Barbara had for it. No animosity, no anger, just, why are you angry? Inquisitive. Why is your face downcast? I think I know why you're angry, but do you know why you're angry? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to rule over you, but you must rule over it. See, if you do what is right is not an ultimatum. Please hear that. If you do what is right is not an ultimatum. It's a spiritual reality. God is saying, regardless of where you are, if you lift up your eyes, if you look to me, if you depend on me, then I'll fill you with my peace and my presence and even my pleasure, my delight. Because I do delight in you. Think about it. Moses would meet with God, it says, face to face, like one talking to a friend. And he would leave those encounters with this heavenly glow. That's what I think acceptance means. Moses was not perfect. I don't think God is saying, Cain, you've got to be perfect. But he is saying, Cain, I want you to see that you're covering yourself in shame. And shame leads to sin that's this stealthy predator, crouching and ready to pounce and devour you. That's why it's a dangerous place because when we feel shame and when we get angry and we look only to ourselves, we begin to believe that distorted story that I'm alone, that I'm not enough, that there's nothing I can do to change it. It's ultimately a story about rejection and isolation. 
And I think it's important to realize that when we're in that place, like Cain, and our eyes are on ourselves, then that anger, at least some of that anger, is directed towards ourselves. I can't tell you the number of people who've come in my office who've been in this unbelievably dark place and they're filled with this detestable self-hatred. Maybe you've been there and you know what you've done and know what you've thought when it's like, oh, I can't stand myself. They might even be lashing out at others, but it is rooted in a self-hatred and it's because our eyes are on ourselves. Because when we have been in this place of anger and shame, it not only blocks God's love, it also blocks God's activity and it opens the door for Satan's attacks. That's why I think God calls sin this hungry beast that's ready to pounce and devour Cain. But we have to see that in the midst of this encounter, in the midst of this doorway being opened and sin being ready to pounce, there's God. And he's calmly and patiently and lovingly urging Cain to see that he's not alone, to see that it's okay that he doesn't feel like he's enough. God is not angry. Please hear that. I can't see any bit of God's anger in this story. God is not angry with Cain, and he's not angry with you. No matter who you are, or where, you at, where you're at, or what you've done. But if we think about it too long, we have to realize that shame is probably the most intolerable emotion that we ever feel. Like, it's hard to put words around. It makes us kind of pulls at this self-hatred. Like, we can feel joy for long periods of time. We can feel um, happiness for long periods of time. We can even feel sadness for long periods of time, or maybe even anger for long periods of time. But shame, shame is this feeling that we can't stand, that we must get rid of. And we'll do anything to get rid of it. And so will Cain. Think about it is the first or the third person created in God's image. And he so can't stand this feeling of shame that he kills the fourth person created in God's image. To try and get rid of that shame, he lashes out to the closest person around him, to the one he should be looking out for, his younger brother. And even when he has the chance, even after the violent sin, God comes to him and gives him this opportunity to come out of hiding, to confess where he's at. He decides to stay in the shadows of shame, which just means he's going to forever be hiding and always afraid that someone's out to get him. God says, Cain, where's your brother, Abel? And he lies. And then when God says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground and you will have this curse and you will be a wanderer and, and wherever you work the ground, it will no longer yield crops. And Cain says, Lord, the punishment is too, it's too unbearable. He goes from lying to wandering in self-pity. 
when God was just inviting him to come out of hiding, to come out of the shame. And this part of the story concludes with Genesis 4.16. So Cain went from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I don't know about you, but I always read that as like, and kind of the opposite fairy tale. And they lived happily ever after. Like, and he moved to, to Nod, east of Eden. Like, sad, but the story's over. Except in Hebrew, Nod means wandering. Cain went from the Lord's presence to the land of wandering. Have you ever lived in the land of wandering? I hate my job. I don't know if I should quit my job. I don't feel like I could do anything else. My coworkers, I, I just maybe I should say, well, I'm I'm put your age in. You know, I have this many years left. I don't, I don't know. The land of wandering. Well, I don't really know what I'm good at. You know, I keep playing these recordings of what some teacher said, but in those recordings of things I'm good at, I also played the recordings of things that I wasn't good at. I don't know what my kids are doing. I don't know how to parent them at this stage. Well, it's never been easy, but now it's really not easy. The land of wandering. Not only do I not know where I'm going, I don't really know who I am. That's what shame ultimately does. Results in feeling alone and wandering. Cain is homeless, shunned, and wandering. And, and what does he do? Right, well, but that's really all we get from Cain other than this byline that says um, that Cain somehow finds a wife. I'm not sure where she came from, but... Um, and he gave birth to a son, and then he built a city. Huh. So, in other words, uh, Cain decided to hide in his accomplishments and uh, live through his children. Oh, come on, people. <laughs> like, how many thousands of years of evolution or, or change, and, and that's what we get? Wow. We've really made it a long way. But there is hope. I believe there's a way out of shame, and I believe that the question that God asks of Cain is the way out of shame. It might not seem like straightforward at first, but he says, where is your brother to show us the way out of shame? And he even does it after this violent sin. Think about it. If God is lovingly asking Cain, where is your brother? I think it's for two reasons. Okay. One is for the people who are in shame because of what they've done. Not because of what's been done to them, but because of what they've done. God asks Cain, where's your brother? because he already knows that he's covered in shame. He's not trying to make him feel shameful about it. He's trying to separate the guilt from the shame. If we want to get out of shame, we too have to separate the guilt from the shame. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Think about your self-talk and how you 
talk to yourself after you do something bad. Do you say, I'm bad? That's shame talking, not guilt. Shame is a focus on ourselves. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. And if you're like, oh, I don't know, I don't like feeling guilty, vulnerability and shame guru Brene Brown says that if we don't feel guilty, we actually become like psychopaths who are unable to feel anything. So I want to feel some, I guess I do want to feel guilt. Again, this is for people who feel shame for what they've done. God also wants to separate the guilt from the shame to find healing. And if you're still not convinced, think about it. The Holy Spirit also asks questions like this to us. Jesus tells his followers in John 16, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him, the advocate, the Holy Spirit. I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. The Holy Spirit brings conviction on us. That is not shame. God does not use shame. God does use guilt. He says it this way in 2 Corinthians 7, for the kind of sorrow or guilt God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. See, we need to confess our guilt needs to lead us to that confession because in the confession, we can find forgiveness from God. We confess to God for forgiveness. We confess to others for healing. That's the second, that leads us to the second reason that God asked this question, where is your brother? It's for anyone, not just if you're in shame because of what's been done to you or if you're in shame because of what you've done. God asks the question because we find our healing from shame ultimately in community. We have to get into community to get out of shame. God wanted a relationship with Adam and Eve, community. He wanted a relationship with Cain, community. And he wants relationship with all of us over and over. Even in the New Old Testament, we see God on the move. God often coming, sometimes going, but God always, always reaching towards humanity, never wanting to abandon them. Because God longs for us to be fully known by him and who longs to be known by us. And to be fully loved and to fully love requires us to be fully known. And that's scary. But James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. See, in order to be free from shame, I think we need another human to look us in the eyes. When we are sitting in shame, when we feel all that guilt for what we've done and say, you're right. You're right for feeling guilt because of what you've done. But I still love you. And God still loves you. And I'm here for you. And God is with you. And he wants you to get rid of that sin and that shame so you can be in relationship with him again and feel the closeness of his love. And we need another human being to say that to us and to be there for us. 
And if you're still not convinced about that, then think about when Jesus asks really personal, even private questions. They're super vulnerable questions. He always asks them in front of a crowd to the invalid who's in the temple for 38 years. Jesus says in front of everyone, do you want to get well? Or to the, to the blind man who was in the little town of Bethany by Jerusalem, as Jesus is walking by and there's this huge crowd, he shouts over the crowd and Jesus stops and in front of everyone says, what do you want me to do for you? It's personal, but it's public. And to the disciples, two-thirds of the way through Jesus' public ministry, he says to all of them, it's not like an individual test. Who do you say I am? Write it down, and then I'll look at the answers with no one's name on them. He says it and asks them in front of everyone. It's personal, and it's public, and let's be honest, for us, it feels weird. But I think Jesus is saying that this is how we heal from shame. It's such a part of our culture and our lives that we can't escape it, so he's going to redeem it. And the way he redeems it is through Christ's community. Because shame wants you to feel isolated and alone, but community reminds you you're not alone. Shame wants you to hide and And blame someone else if you're exposed. But Christ's community says, you're welcome here. You don't have to have it all together because we're all being restored by Jesus. So as the band comes up, I want you to just consider how much of Christ's community you're experiencing right now. One of the small groups that I was in um, just a couple years ago for several years was with acquaintances that became dear, dear friends, Greg, Marcy, and Rose. And we met together to listen to God and to each other. We came to confess, to bring our actual selves instead of our ideal selves. We came to help each other see God, see ourselves, and see our situations in the light of God's truth and love, and oftentimes we needed help to do that. And what was so good about this group is that we were not just able, but encouraged to bring our actual selves, to confess when we've missed it, and to to admit where we saw God at work and to not feel proud about it especially without having the pressure to to sound like the pastors, the teachers, the counselors, and the communicators that every one of us were. That everyone saw and most people usually expected. But we could vulnerably share our highest highs and our lowest lows. And we got training from someone about how to structure our time and how to hold our thoughts, our comments, and even our questions. And it's hard to hold your questions when someone's telling you a story. But when I shared some of my lowest lows, by them holding their thoughts, their comments, and their questions, they weren't trying to fix me. No, they didn't want me to stay in that place, but they weren't trying to fix me, and I felt seen and heard and accepted. 
And one of the people in the group, in one moment that was painfully low, said, I am not doing well. My thought life has been unhealthy and unhelpful. And in that moment, nothing more needed to be said. We all saw that person. And we said, it's okay. You can tell us more if you want to. But we see you. We believe in you. And we want to help you to know where God is in the midst of that. And know what's true beyond this moment where you're at. And to this day, it remains one of the closest community moments of the last three years of my life. Gave me a vocabulary for my own life when I was feeling down or shame. I could say, well, staff can attest to this, I'm not feeling like my thought life is very helpful or healthy right now. It's okay. Friends, this is what God wants for all of us, all the time. As we sing this song, and as we just reflect on what God's word has said, I want you to think about again, how much of God's community are you experiencing right now? And maybe you've been in a season where you've stepped away from a small group, and maybe this is the Holy Spirit saying, it's time to come back. Maybe you've never stepped in, and this is God saying, it's time to jump in. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be willing and accept the community. You pray with me. Uh, God, as we consider your word today and your, your story, I pray that we would see your grace and your love in the midst of your truth. God, that you continue to love us beyond our shame and beyond our actions to try and rid ourselves of that shame, which usually end up worse than we were off before. I pray even today that you would give us moments and reminders through the people around us that we are not alone. That you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us that you are with us, that in Jesus we have the ultimate example and present reality that you, God, are with us. That you would give your everything to be with us. God, may we live in relationship with you every moment and live in relationship with others. Not because of the good that we do or the bad that we've done, but because of what you have already done. Jesus, we thank you for the cross, for making a way for us to restoring us and redeeming us, to making us like new. We pray that we could see ourselves in that place of being fully known and fully loved.